Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Motion, a podcast from the High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, which is undertaking research into the complex and interrelated issues of sustainable transport across Africa and South Asia. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, HVT, is an 18 million pound investment by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. I'm Holger Dogman, your host for today's session. Welcome. Research is telling us that transport is not inclusive and urgently needs to change. This is a case across the world, but particularly in low and middle income countries. Accessible public transport, as well as safe infrastructure for walking and cycling are essential for people to access education, employment and healthcare, as well as social contact with family, friends and the wider community. The ability to move and travel independently is fundamental to breaking the downward spiral of dependence and poverty and to building strong communities and economies. And the third series of Reimagining Motion will shine a light on the inequalities across the transport sector and explore how those currently excluded need to not only be the beneficiaries of development, but more importantly, that they're agents of change driving that development. For this episode, we have Anne Fry. Anne is a well-known international specialist on the transport needs of disabled and older people. She advises public, commercial and professional bodies on policy solutions to meet mobility needs in all transport modes and in the pedestrian environment. She started her career as working with the Department for Transport, introduced there as a legislation on disability issues, and has led projects for the United Nations, the European Commission, and the European Science Foundation on access standards and best practice. She has also advised governments and transport authorities in Canada, Hong Kong, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. So there are... 1.3 billion people with disabilities, 16% of the world population. So disability is a very broad topic with a variety of different impacts. So can you give us some initial thought? What are the biggest challenges for people with disabilities in the context of transport? It's an enormous population, but it's also a very diverse population. I think we tend to assume disabled people means people in wheelchairs. Perhaps we also think of, of blind people, but it's a it's a vast spectrum and includes a lot of people with learning disability, with mental health issues, with what we now call neurodivergence. So everything from autism to a whole range of, of, of different types of issues, all of which can affect your ability to travel and to travel with confidence. So it's important not to pigeonhole disabled people as being, you know, a wheelchair user or an old person with difficulty walking. There are many, many people like that, but they're only a very small part of a much wider spectrum of people, all of whom have real issues and problems if they can't move about freely. It starts to impinge on your ability to, to get to education, to get to work, to get to medical appointments, to have a social life. People, I think, don't realize how important mobility and transport is until they lose it. And then you suddenly realize how constrained your life has become. So you talked about the different type of, of disabilities, but at the same time, you worked also in low and middle income countries as well as in high income countries. What are the main differences? 
I think the main differences are that in, in many low-income countries, there hasn't really been a proper understanding of the nature of disability or the size of the disabled population. We have a, a huge problem with the, the way statistics are gathered. So many of the countries in Africa and Southeast Asia, for example, who have huge populations of disabled people, official government statistics don't show that. So it's very easy then for politicians to think, actually, we don't have much of a problem. There's not very many people who are disabled. So underneath all of this is, is the need for a much better statistical base that, that gathers really not, it's not medical conditions. We need to know what the functional issue is. Can they climb steps? Can they uh, walk to the bus stop? Things of that kind. So I think that is, is the fundamental problem and the real difference that disability isn't being recognised in many low-income countries as the enormous social and economic problem that it is. You highlight the importance of data, better data collection. But what happens next when those governments also have these data <laughs> or should happen? Should have that data. That at least then gives them an idea of the size of the issue that they're dealing with. And it therefore becomes more of a political priority. If you start to understand that many disabled people are not economically active in many countries, they simply have to, to subsist without any support. But they are nonetheless there and they are potentially part of the economic viability of a country if you can only capture that uh, resource. And mobility and providing mobility are very much fundamental to that. We start with government with also better information, awareness, data, but what needs to be done on the ground? So how does one begin looking at how to improve transport outcomes for a person with disabilities on the ground? I think it's a matter of, of starting with what is with what is simple and very often low cost. I mean, we know, for example, that, that there are millions of people who need a wheelchair who don't have one. So the whole question of mobility becomes academic if you don't even have that basic level. So perhaps starting with the basic needs that would enable somebody to get out of their house uh, in order to start progress towards uh, independence. So whether it's supplying wheelchairs to people who need them and don't have them, or whether it's supplying a, a long cane and training and mobility to people with impaired sight, those need to be the starting point. But at the same time, there are very simple low-cost things. A, a pot of yellow paint put along the edge of the curb at the step of a bus can help a lot of people with low vision. A wooden ramp that can be put up to bridge a gap. All of these things, very simple, very low-cost, something that bridges a storm drain so you don't have that enormous barrier to overcome across the street. It's easy to think that the problem is too big and too expensive, but you can start from a very low base to build up towards something that then can really make a substantial difference. So starting with looking at the mobility needs and the starting with, with, with the people and then moving towards the, the services around. So with limited access to private transport in low and middle income countries, what are the key ways to improve public transport? You already shared some, but give us also some examples. Again, I think you can you can look at the design of bus stops because if you can't get to the bus stop or get on the bus, you don't even have a starting point. It's really quite simple, for example, to, to create a raised bus stop. So you reduce the, the height of the step. You train bus drivers that they need to pull up close to the stop uh, so that that gap is, is reduced. Uh, you produce, you provide handrails to make it easier for people to pull themselves up onto the bus. So you don't need the, the fancy European technology of low floor buses. Wonderful though those are, they can come later. 
if you can just create any kind of platform, which is where Europe started. I mean, way back uh, in the 1960s and 70s in Sweden, they built up bus platforms to reduce the height onto the bus. And that's where the whole movement started. So I think if we go back to look at what Europe did 30, 40 years ago, it's still a very viable proposition for getting off the ground, almost literally, in terms of where we can start. You talked about public transport, and as we know, in, in many countries in, in Africa and, and in Asia, there's even there's not a formal public transport as we see it in the US or in, in Europe. Lots of, of people are actually really dependent on informal transport, so in particular some minivans. Are there solutions there? Yeah, and it's, it's the same kind of issue of, of anything you can do to reduce step height to enable people to get on. I mean, one of the biggest problems with informal transport is actually bigotry and prejudice of other passengers. Sad to say, a lot of disabled people report uh, that they are not welcome on those uh, services because other passengers don't want to sit next to them or don't understand the nature of their disability. So in behind all of this, there's a huge education program to be done. But in terms of, you know, just physically getting on the vehicle, because they're informal, they don't have set stops. So it can often be easier to find a place to stop that enables somebody to get on board with with less difficulty. Though, of course, again, then you have to contend with the other passengers saying they're being delayed and let's move. So there's a, there's a social issue there as well as a, a, a physical and traffic based one, if you like. So you talked about the social issue, but uh, you mentioned the, the challenge of the awareness of, of by policymakers as well as those operators. So what has been done or what can be done to increase the awareness of that really big and important challenge? For policymakers, I think, again, it, it brings us back to statistics and to understanding the, the huge economic burden that a country carries if it doesn't have a productive workforce of many, many people with disabilities who could be economically active and who want to be. So getting that into the minds of policymakers and politicians is absolutely fundamental. When it comes to the transport providers themselves, again, in, in many countries, if, it's, if the, the bus service is, is run by the state, it's an official one, then you can start to look at the structure of the bus stop, the design of the bus, the training of the bus driver. With the informal services, it is much more difficult, except that they have the flexibility to go where people need them to go. But you still need to tackle that fundamental understanding that those people exist because you don't see them out on the street because they can't get out on the street. So it's, it's a bit of a vicious circle. You know, it's easy to say, well, there aren't many disabled people about because until you've, you've taken that first step, you won't see them about. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an education process that needs to happen first. So you worked also with a high volume transport program and created a disability inclusive public transport guide, which outlines some practical steps to make public transport more disability inclusive. Can you share some of these steps? Yeah, I think again, it's, it's starting from, from whatever resources you have. And the first step always, in my view, is talk to disabled people. In the UK, way back in the uh, 1980s, we found that Disabled people had never had a conversation with transport providers and vice versa. And the transport people were, were frightened because, whoa, we couldn't possibly have a wheelchair user on the bus or the train. So the first thing that we did as government, as I was then, was to bring them together and have a conversation. You know, if, if there's one thing we can do 
as government to make public transport better? Where do we start? And in the UK or in London in particular, the, the answer was, look at taxis, because taxis are the only form of transport that is door to door. If you can make taxis accessible, we can start to get out and to move about. And from that beginning, uh, then you can start to tackle other issues. So I would say the same message uh, anywhere in the world, in any circumstance, if you can talk to disabled people about what their priorities are. People are realistic. They realize that you're not going to have a 100% solution um, in the short term, even in the medium term. But if you don't start somewhere by recognizing need, you're never going to get to that goal. So engagement, there's a, a well-known saying among disabled people, nothing about us without us. And I think that's fundamental. You've got to talk to the people whose needs you need to meet. Thank you. And that's very interesting. Is there anything else you want to highlight out of, out of this report? There's a, there's a huge amount in there. I think we look at, at each different transport mode within the report and we look at a successful and less successful examples from around the world. And there is so much, I think, that can be that can be learned and shared. For me, one of the starkest issues for low-income countries was funding, international funding of transport projects, bus rapid transit and so on, which have come through over the years with no regard for accessibility. There are quite a number around the world, you know, beautiful modern systems with high steps and no access. And once you've done that, you've perpetuated that inaccessible system for 50, 70, 100 years. Now, uh, finally, these banking uh, organizations are saying it's a non-negotiable condition of funding. It's got to be accessible. But it's taken far too long for that to come through. And many countries have gratefully accepted funding for modern transport systems without considering that if you build in accessibility from the start, it's actually very little cost, additional cost. If you exclude it, it's almost impossible to build it on afterwards. So, for example, we have in, in South America examples of beautiful systems that run through the middle of a five-lane highway. And the only way for passengers to reach that system is with a footbridge up and over. So you've immediately excluded people from using it. The examples from India of a lot of access effort going into the, the transport system, but nobody's looked at how you get to the station. So you've invested in, in lifts and level boarding. I think Hyderabad is one such example of beautiful technology. But actually, when you look at the pedestrian environment that leads to the station, there's no way anyone with a physical disability could begin to get there to use it. So all the time, it's thinking through the whole process. It isn't enough to do it in little bits and to say, you know, we'll put in a, an accessible bus system here. You need to think about, can people get to it? Can people use it? Can they get a ticket? How do they understand the system? How do you communicate with people that something is there? So there's, there's, a, there's a very wide range of issues that need to be tackled. You, you highlight the importance of the international funders and, and particularly so refers to the World Bank and things have changed. And in fact, the when I looked at the very interesting read and really helpful guidance you and you developed, you, you refer to some work of the World Bank and some guidance. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on that, please? The World Bank have produced really useful guidance about, if you like, the, the, the non-negotiable technical standards. So it's very helpful to say, 
you know, no floor height should be more than this, and and to set those basic parameters for design. And the, the World Bank have done some very interesting and useful work on that. And I think if those guidelines were followed as the basic parameters, we would we certainly would get much closer to accessibility. It's easy if you are not a specialist in this area, not to understand, you know, how important even a very small upstand at the edge of a curb is if you're a wheelchair user, or how dangerous it is for a blind person if there isn't some sort of a tactile warning system. All of these things, and and things as simple as colour edging on the bus step, these are the kind of things that um, World Bank have, have set down as their parameters. And I think that's that's immensely helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, so for sharing that. Uh, you referred to some of the examples of report. Can you also share some more with our audience? So uh, what is a successful, inclusive disability transfer policy? Starting with engagement, starting with talking to disabled people. And I think I would say South Africa is doing some, some excellent work there where they've gathered local communities together to discuss you know where to put a bus route where's the most helpful place for it to be and then to look at the design of the vehicles and the services and take a holistic approach if you like where do people travel from and to in a local community i think too often worldwide bus routes have been in place for 30 years even though the entire population and its needs have shifted, we're very slow to recognize and change. But you then, if you look at Brazil as an example, where they have a, a long-standing government commitment to accessibility and public transport, as in other areas, and it's been a non-negotiable political commitment for a long time. So everything they do is inclusive of accessibility. And that makes a massive difference. If you don't have that, Every time there's a discussion about a new rail system, a new bus route, a new pedestrian area, mistakes are made because you haven't thought through the whole of the population. From the good examples to the less good examples, so what is a common mistake or misconception that governments, organizations and policymakers make when they're trying to address disability, inclusion and transport? Oh, goodness, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> they often think that disability, as I said earlier, is, is about wheelchairs. And so they don't think beyond that. So maybe you put a, a ramp to get on the bus, but you don't think about all the other people for whom bus travel or train travel is, is also really difficult and, and uh, often impossible. Or they don't, they don't consider the bigger picture. So, for example, the, the one I mentioned in Hyderabad, where... It's a beautiful new accessible rail system, but you can't get to the station. That's a very typical mistake because it's very often a different part of government. In many countries, uh, the, the bit of government that deals with public transport is different from the one that deals with pedestrian infrastructure. And if the two don't come together, it's never going to work. So it's, it's again, it's bringing those, all those bits together to say, where is the community that's going to use this new system? Where are they coming from? How are they going to get there? You know, getting into the station is, is the first problem you need to address. Getting on the train is the other part of it. Uh, so that's very often a failing, I'm finding, that, that you don't have this joined up approach, which again, if you talk to disabled people before you started, first thing they would probably say to you is, this is lovely, but I can't get to it or I can't get on it, or I can't find it, or I don't know how to get a ticket. I don't know where to get information. You know, it, you need to track right back. Before somebody's left their home, they need to know 
how am I going to get there? And that includes not just physically, how am I going to get there? How am I going to get there in terms of the information that I need? So you spoke about the importance really have the engagement, have the listening to us, the people to have those those challenges. So to really so secure the inclusion. But how do you think we can ensure these opinions and experience of persons with disabilities that they're really part of the transport planning? It is very difficult. And I know disability organizations across low-income countries too are desperate to be heard, but they're not always listened to. As I say, South Africa is certainly doing it and doing it well. Many other countries have even got laws that say they must be engaged, but it isn't actually happening. So I think it needs to start from the highest level of government to say you really must, A, ensure everything is accessible, but B, the way to do that is start with talking with disabled people. That needs to happen at the most local level as well as at the national level. Because it's you know the, the, the pedestrian environment in your neighborhood is the make or break point for somebody uh, who's a wheelchair user or a blind person or whatever it might be. And if you haven't started from that micro level, there's no point in all the fancy technology that might come along because you haven't addressed the fundamental part of how do I get out of my house. So you created, obviously, this great guidance, but do you think there is, is enough information out there and where people can actually learn more about these issues? There is a huge amount of guidance out there. And in the, in the guide, we do list a lot of the resources worldwide that exist. There's a huge amount on the, you know the basic design parameters. We talked about what the World Bank have done. Many other governments and organizations have done similar work, just saying, This is the minimum width of a, of a pavement if you want to allow wheelchair users to use it. Uh, this is the minimum curb uh, to enable a blind person to detect when they're leaving the safety of the pavement going into the road. So huge amount of guidance, almost all of it consistent because we've all done the same research and come to very similar problems. So if you, if you look at that HVT guidance, you'll find a whole list of publications and uh, material that you can access uh, online in different languages that gives you that fundamental starting point. So it's it's not a not a research gap, it's really it's like an implementation gap. Is that correct? I, I, yes, I would say so. I mean the research certainly in the US and in and in Europe goes back 40, 50 years. Um, and we all started from the same point that we recognized that disabled people couldn't use public transport, couldn't get out and about. So that work has all been done and it should be possible to translate that across to a large extent. There are obviously very different conditions in many low-income countries. The, the conditions of the roads, for example, may produce issues with low-floor vehicles, which is why sometimes the simpler build up the bus stop to enable you to access a slightly higher floor bus might be a more viable uh, option. But the basic principles and the basic research, I would say, is, is there um, and it's available to be learned from. Thank you. And so in the information of the podcast, we will share so the link for the HVT guidance as well as other, other resources. So please have a have a look into, into that. Coming to the bigger picture, we have also the sustainable development goals. And here particularly so in 11.2.1, we say accessible, affordable transport for all. So it should be also inclusive. Are we making actually progress here globally? In some places, some of the time, yes. We're a long way short of that um, goal. 
for the, the reasons we've been we've been talking about. I think the affordability point is is also an interesting one because you've got this vicious circle of poverty, which is much much uh, more prevalent among uh, disabled people. So if they can't afford to use the bus, it doesn't matter if the bus is accessible. So you, how do you get somebody into employment so they can start to earn so they've then got the availability and the, the means to use public transport? So I think in behind this, you also need government-based policies on do we give disabled people free travel? Do we subsidise travel by disabled people? How do, you, how do you go about breaking that vicious circle that then enables people to to get back into work and to, and to start to be productive. There are plans and policies in, in many countries that do that, that give people concessionary fares, so a half fare on the bus or whatever it might be. But I think that needs to be thought about right from the start. There's no use saying we've introduced this lovely uh, new system if people can't afford to use it. And that, that link between disability and poverty is one of the most difficult ones to break in many low-income countries. And it, I think, takes it will take government intervention to look at the the economic and social standing of disabled people to enable them to get onto that ladder that will then take them towards employment and productivity. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and coming back, in fact, to what you said earlier, the importance of, of listening, listening to, to everyone with a different type of needs. Thank you, Anne, for really interesting information and, and thoughts. Is there any final message as we come to the closure of our podcast today that you want to send, send out? I think my main message would be that you have a huge pool of, of people who could and should be living better lives than they are, and that giving them access to mobility is fundamental to that. Once you've broken down that barrier, people will get to school, they'll get better education, they'll get better health care, they'll get better employment. So starting with tackling what are the barriers that prevent people from getting out, whether it's the lack of a wheelchair, the lack of a, a, a viable piece of road to get to the bus stop, the lack of a bus that they can get on, Whatever it is, that is infinitely cheaper and easier in social and economic terms than living with a huge population who are in poverty and unable to do what they need to do. So massive social and economic imperatives there that can and should be tackled and for which mobility and transport are absolutely at the heart. So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the work of our guests and any of the resources, please check out the links in the description. I always encourage you to listen to the other episodes in the series. Also, you can leave us a rating, hopefully a good one, and a review. It really helps others find our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the High Volume Transport, you can check out our website at transport-links.com or or follow us on Twitter at transport underscore links or on LinkedIn at High Volume Transport Applied Research Program. The High Volume Transport Applied Research Program, HVT, is an £18 million investment by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, FCDO. The program's new body of research aims to help inform decisions of policymakers in low-income countries and make road and rail transport greener, safe, 
and more accessible and affordable. My name is Holger Dogman and you have been listening to Reimagining Motion. Thank you. Stay and travel safe wherever you are. Goodbye and I'll see you soon.